The example I mentioned earlier that I'm concerned, you know, in the cookie-free world that people are going to start gating blogs. An alternate to that is maybe just having a pop-up where it's asking you to subscribe and showing what we would share with you. Welcome to Insights as a Service. This week, we are talking all things marketing in the ICT space, I guess the MSP, the, the SaaS space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because I don't know, well, I should know more than I do about that, but I don't know enough. Uh, so I've got Ali Burke in to talk to me and all of you about that. So with that terrible intro done, uh, I'll do a quick intro and then throw over to you because um, we know each other through your work with Cloud Olive. Uh, we had Adam on the podcast, I don't know how many months ago now, but quite some time, season one, yeah. some time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you also work with uh, Zen Contract as well. So my notes say you work with Cloud Olive, mm-hmm. uh, Zen Contract, B Castle, and MSP Magic. Mm-hmm. How did all of that come about? So thanks for having me on. Um, so I guess yeah, how I work with those businesses is in a marketing advisor role. So going back to my earlier career, I kind of grew up, um, not to show my age, but grew up uh, in an in-house MSP. So Huon IT, they're sort of a mid-tier MSP firm. Um, I worked with them for over a decade. So saw them scale from, I think there were only eight or 10 staff when I started. And by the time I left, there were sort of 60, 50 or 60 staff. So quite a decent size. Um, and my remit there yep. was marketing and general management. Right, right from the outset, or did you grow into the the GMP? So I assume over that period, did you kick off in marketing? Grew into yeah, so back, background predominantly a bit of operations and marketing, and then grew into the GM role, and then decided marketing was really my passion, and so now I've stepped out and created my own consulting business. Okay, and how did you get to know you know Adam at Cloud Olive as an example? Was that through your work at Huon, or somewhat after that? Yeah, so funnily enough, he because Adam. Um, Prior to starting up Cloud Olive, he actually headed up Autotask in Australia and he sold to me. I was his client um, and we implemented Autotask with our PSA. So he talked me through that. And then um, I guess for your viewers who have watched the previous episodes and know what Cloud Olive is, um, a multi-vendor reconciliation tool, while Adam was in the sort of startup mode, he went through a sort of VC incubator. Um, he called on me while I was still in-house for advice on what MSPs actually need, how to build the product, that kind of thing. And then, yeah, when it was ready, he sort of said, do you want to be my marketing advisor? So he was my first client. There you go. And I think that's what makes um, you a really interesting person to talk to is you've, you've worked inside an MSP, you've marketed that, you've marketed two MSPs, you're currently doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you certainly have your head around, I guess, both sides of that, of that equation. Yeah. Um, in, in, your, in your current role, I guess if we start off with this, you're, you're presenting what are relatively new concepts to MSPs. You're, you're like Cloud Olive is trying to solve a problem that, um, you know, certainly as far as I know, it's, it's one of a few that are doing that. You know, you've got Zen Contract that's trying to do something relatively new. You've got Beecastle, MSP Magic, et cetera. Yeah. How do you go about selling something that people don't really understand might be a problem they have or if they know it's a problem, they don't realize there's a way of solving it other than the manual way they're already already going about? How do you, how do you generate demand for something that the market's not used to hearing about? Well, I guess I'm in a fortunate position with my background. I'm only working with clients that I wish I had these tools when I ran an MSP. 
So I've, you know, firsthand experience living the pain of not having that tool. So I guess that gives me quite a good advantage in terms of, you know, helping them create their marketing strategies and content and things like that. Because if you talk about, you know, pain versus gain, I've seen that journey, I've lived it. Um, but I guess when you're, when you're sort of wanting to go in and create something new and educate people about it, I guess marketing, you know, the scale of um, like creation, uh, creation of demand and capture of demand, you've really got to start with that creation of demand, educating people that there actually is a solution for it. So a few years in, into Cloud Olive now, I think they've been going for three years, and there are still some MSPs um, that sort of go, oh, we didn't even know that there was a solution to this monthly billing problem. Um, so that's something that even though, you know, Cloud Olive is a little more established and they're definitely, you know, capturing lots of this demand in parallel, they're just continually educating the market through sort of thought leadership um, pieces. Same for Zen Contract, Beecastle, they're, they're all purpose built for MSPs but they're kind of having to educate them along the way that everyone kind of knew there was a problem, but it's a problem that maybe they accepted that they had to deal with, that they didn't know there was a ready-made solution for it. So, and that's, that's with technical people, right? People who understand technology and yet there's still an education piece. Mm-hmm. Um, where MSPs are dealing with people who may not be decision makers, business owners, operators that aren't quite as technical, how much mm-hmm. harder is that education piece? Like, and how do you find ways to actually get through to the people you want to be educating? You know what? I don't think it differs. Humans are humans, whether they're in a technical role or an operational role. I think that they don't want to experience pain in their day-to-day. So I think if you strip the tech talk away, don't talk about, you know, bits and bytes and things like that, and just talk about, you know, your your value prop to them on a day-to-day basis, I think it's I think the premise is fundamentally the same. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's the problem you can solve for them, right? Like how how can I make your life easier? And don't focus on how you're going to do it necessarily. It's more about, well, here's here's how it's going to look afterwards. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, that's the traditional sort of funnel concept is just talking about problem initially, educating them, oh, actually there is a solution to this, but you're not going to bombard them on day one with, you know, product screenshots and things like that. Um, you might start with a sort of thought leadership mm. topic, volunteering your time to talk at events or webinars, things like that. And then it just paves a really nice path for you to take them along that journey. And I think that's something that a lot of business owners and founders and that kind of thing should take their audience along the journey of their business as well. It just makes it more authentic about how it started, why it started. So founder-led voices Mm. and, you know, their passion. Um, I mean, you obviously know Adam quite well, but for anyone watching, um, if they don't follow Adam on LinkedIn, they should because he just takes people along the journey from from startup and just the grind and he's just like authentic and honest and a bit raw about it. And I think that that, um, yeah, it's all about storytelling and taking people on the journey, not necessarily yeah, showing them a few screenshots of your product. So how, how much do you reckon it's an underrated um, asset or, or an underrated skill to actually just be um, a compelling storyteller, to, to be charismatic, to actually be able to, um, you know, get capture people's attention and hold it as a, as a mm-hmm. founder? Because you can be a great marketer, but if you don't have the right content created by these 
by these thought leaders, you know, mm-hmm. at their webinars, if they're dull, um, if they're not great writers, if they're not, um, you know, able to present well in person at events, mm-hmm. you know, how much, how much effort do you see people putting into actually creating those skills? Or is it more people just going to go, oh, you either have it or you don't? Yeah. And that's kind of where it ends. Look, not enough effort. Some people are born with it, but you can learn it. I think particularly, you know, if we're talking about the MSP space, let's be honest, MSPs talk about unique value props and what their sales pitches and elevator pitches are. But at the end of the day, a lot of MSPs are the same as each other. They all, you know, do professional services. They resell Microsoft and all the other vendors under the sun. So this, the kind of founder-led voice and what the company is about and those values and the customer experience that that portrays, that's their unique value prop is the experience of what it's going to be like for the customer to do business with your business. And, yeah, a founder or, or a senior exec should definitely be the voice of that. So I think that people need to embrace it. And if they're not, you know, super smooth in front of the camera, they've just got to embrace that as well. So I've seen some real tech like technical directors who maybe didn't have the self-confidence to be out there doing talks and all that kind of thing is to just embrace, I guess, their inner nerd and that they're not super smooth because people, people see through like the fake facade anyway. So just be real. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're a technical, a CTO, a technical director talking to a tech audience, they don't care that you're not super smooth. They just want to believe in what you're telling them and sharing your knowledge with them. So for me, yeah, it's all about authenticity and just getting out there. That's fair. I I think, um, I remember when we started this, this podcast too, you know, um, it took us a, a long time to find our voice. I think I figure out who we actually were and get comfortable, mm-hmm. me to get comfortable, um, you know, mm-hmm. being, being the face of You're it. You're very and, good at it now, Brett. And I didn't see, uh, I should rewatch one of your early episodes. <laughs> nah, don't, don't recommend it. Nah, just stick to just halfway through season one onwards. You should probably yeah. delete the rest anyway. Um, but yeah, you, you do have to kind of stick with it. Allow yourself to be a bit vulnerable. Um, you know, take the hits, learn from them, carry on. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. But let's say that then that you're, um, you're a marketing coordinator or, or whatever your role might be, you know, and you've got some, some charismatic, intelligent business owner operator giving you this content, whether it's webinars that have been pre-recorded or great blogs or eBooks or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. you want to put it out there and you want to, I guess, ideally maybe get some attribution. Mm-hmm. Short version of this question is, should you gauge content or should you not gauge content? And let's see what you say. And then we might have an argument about it. Okay. Well, firstly, if you're a marketing coordinator who has a uh, director or founder feeding you content, then props, because that's amazing. (laughs) Normally it's the other way around. They're they're nagging them for it. Um, But look, to gate or not to gate, it, it really depends on the type of content that you're putting out. I mean, people's personal data is important to them. So for me, like my view is, is that it has to be of value for you to ask for that. Um, and it's like, I don't know, hmm. a first date talking to someone at the bar, you talk to them, like just on show, show your value type thing before you go in for the kill. Um, so, you know, I'm concerned that with the future of marketing going kind of like a cookie free world and privacy settings ramping up and that kind of thing, gating content is a tool that a marketer can still use. And I would hate for people to start gating things like blogs or brochures. 
um, because mm. I think that they're going to lose a lot of their conversion rates that way because people just don't want to give away their data for nothing. So for me, something that includes an element of original IP is what should be gated. So any kind of thought leadership, yeah. guide, something that you're giving away that is going to value this person, then 100% gate it, track them, all that kind of thing. But if it's just, you know, I've, I've literally seen people gating a fact sheet brochure that is almost the same information that's just on their homepage. And it's just people, people yeah, see it's through it. kind of gross. Are you going to argue with me on that yeah. or do you agree? No, you're right. I, I'm going to, I'm going to add to it. Okay. Let's say that. So I think, I think you have to earn the right to gate stuff. So yes, having something that's actually got some value, but people, if it's, gate, if it's too gated, people aren't going to know that it has value. I think you've got to have a brand that people have had served up to them via, you know, whether it's sponsored posts or, or something that they've seen you create content that hasn't been gated. That could be, again, podcast snippets. It could be um, ebook um, snippets. It could be, um, you know, pre-recorded webinar bits, but something that shows that you're worth listening to and you're here to actually provide um you know, resources or information that will solve problems for your target audience. Mm -hmm. And I think people are more likely to go, okay, I will give you my, because the whole point is I don't want to gate, um, gate information and not have my brand engaged with. Yep. Um, obviously the, the counter to that is, well, if they're engaged enough and if it's of enough value to them, they'll give me the detail anyway, because you know, they're in, and then you've actually got something to follow up with. But everyone knows that if they give you the details, you're going to spam them with something. Like it's yeah. it's coming. They're going to get something. So yeah. people people are a little bit wary. So my thing is you've either got to give them enough of a preview of the thing that you're trying to gate. So they go, cool, actually, I've seen enough of this and not it's worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Or you've got to have already given them enough value that they feel like they've got some attachment to the brand and don't just immediately detest you or opt out of that that journey yeah. because you tried to get them to, to give your data, yeah. uh, them, their data to you. So yeah. That's probably what I'd add to it. And I think, you know, we haven't gated any of the books that we've created. You know, mm -hmm. we've done three CX books. We've done Teams Calling. We've done, we've just done um, New Zealand Telco for AU ISPs. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm starting to think maybe we've done enough now to have earned that right. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I'm, I'm leaning more towards what you're saying. Yeah. I think as well is how, um, how many fields you're putting in in a gated asset. So I can't tell you the exact stat, but I read something like for every additional field you add on a gated form, you lose, you know, 20% of your audience. Um, so, for instance, what turns me off, like as a consumer, if I'm going through and I want to download something, I don't love it when people ask for my mobile number. I'm happy to pop in my email address and my first name. But... Ooh, yeah. Some people just want to write a 10, like, so I think maybe three fields or so is the ideal amount. And you can do, if you've got platforms like HubSpot, you can do progressive profiling. So the second time they download something, you don't repeat the questions, you already have the answers to. You can ask them something a little bit deeper. Um, yeah. But I think, yeah. you know, you want to give your sales reps enough information. So they do want a phone number and that's fair. But it's a reality that if you're asking for a phone number, you're going to lose some of your audience because they don't want you ringing them um, necessarily. So it's just. Yeah, I feel like that's creepy. Yeah. There's something less creepy about an email address, right? Yeah. Yeah. So look, it's what you were saying with the, you know, have you earned the right and the bit of a relationship or familiarity with the brand? If I've engaged with a couple of Lightwire pieces of content already, maybe I'd be more comfortable giving my uh, 
mobile number. Mm. But if it was fresh off the bat, top of funnel content, uh, brand new to your brand, no, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to tell you what systems I run. I wouldn't want to tell you how many staff I have. And the reality is as well is that salespeople go go onto LinkedIn and figure out a lot of this themselves. Literally all you really need is an email address. If you wanted to get the highest conversion possible on a gated piece of content, you would literally just ask for an email address and you can figure out the rest with LinkedIn stalking. (laughs) So it's, it's, you know, it's a debate. Yeah. I was just thinking as well, I haven't really formed this thought very well, so it's probably going to be a dumb one, but if, if you like, so there's, there's this language, um, website they have a podcast too and if you want to go get the transcripts from the podcast you can log in you create an account basically mm-hmm. and it's a one-time thing and you know name email address that's it um, but obviously then they can serve you up there with their weekly newsletter or whatever mm-hmm. i'm just thinking like as a brand is is that something we should be exploring more the idea that you aren't just a brand you're, you're a content creator a creator of value and therefore people might want to actually subscribe to that so it's less about giving me your data if there's one bit of information but actually interact with me as a, as a member of what is a, um, essentially a, a, a content creation business, yeah. which is kind of almost every business now is a content creation business. We're all creating something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We're sharing our knowledge with each other. I mean, in that example, they are, I think 100% within their right to ask for the details. They've performed a service by transcribing a, a podcast or whatever script. Um, so yeah. in that instance, I think it's very, very fair enough. And, and yeah, if you're, so the example I mentioned earlier that I'm concerned, you know, in the cookie free world that people are going to start gating blogs An alternate to that is maybe just having a pop-up where it's asking you to subscribe and showing what we would share with you. So, you know, say it's a, a tech article blog because we know that all IT support guys do lots and lots of Googling. They get onto forums and blogs and things like that. Um, and it's a pop-up. Maybe, you know, you can set you can set your CMS for after 10 seconds or 20 seconds or 30 seconds of browsing, I'm going to serve them a pop-up and I'm going to explain, you know, if you like this content, do you want more? I publish monthly tips on X, Y, Z. And then, it's optional for them. So you're not being sneaky. You're not being intrusive or demanding. Um, I mean, I hate when I click through to like a Forbes news article or something like that. And, you know, you can see the first paragraph and then you can't keep going. You wouldn't want to do that with something like an MSP blog, but you can certainly still, it's like the semi-gating approach. Yeah. I actually like that. And I think that way too, it's like, we're doing you a favor. We're, we're going to serve up future things like this. So if you like this, make it easy on yourself. Let us just send it to you. Um, so it kind of turns it around from we're asking you for something we're offering to give you. Yeah. Yeah. If my bog solved a business problem for you, then I will send you more next month. So it's a great way to get an engaged list. Yeah. All right, cool. I'll make a note to do that. Um, take a note, Romain. Uh, by Monday, please. Um, so with uh, with the voice, okay, so you've got this this um, this business that has people within it creating content and being their authentic selves. Mm-hmm. In your experience, and I know, I think you're off to London soon to do something, I think, with Cloud Olive, you're all over the place all the time. Um, in <laughs> yeah, these I different markets them. with these consumers from very different places, I feel, yeah, I feel like you're at a conference every other week. I always um, <laughs> see you popping up on LinkedIn and that. But um, uh, where was I going with this? Oh, yes, right. So, so 
you're working with these business operators who have these authentic voices. You're in very different markets. Do you find that those voices resonate better or worse in different places? Or do you think that, um, you know, the, 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 the marketplace has got global enough now that it all translates just fine everywhere you're operating? That's a good question. Especially, especially you know, a uniquely sort of Australian slash New Zealand approach. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, I have found it resonates differently. So, for instance, running some like webinars, thought leadership um, class sessions, the Aussies and New Zealanders are super informal, happy to share, like they're very interactive on the online sessions and they'll share their business problems. Whereas like US, et cetera, are typically a bit more reserved and maybe, I don't know if it's that they don't want to give away any business trade secrets on those forums. Hmm. So the tone just is a little more formal, I find, in the US market. Aussie, New Zealand um, and UK similar, a bit more jovial, casual, sharing, that kind of thing. So if you step back from that lesson learned for me in terms of creating my content, if I was going to write in the future an invite to these markets, I would definitely position it a little bit differently. ANZ would be more about, um, yeah, casual networking, that kind of thing, whereas a US market might be just the education piece. Okay. Do they all tend to network the same way after a few drinks though? Everyone just goes about that in a very similar fashion. 100%. I've been to one or two conferences in um in the US and they seem, yeah. Yeah. yeah everyone just kind of gets a few drinks in them and it's fine. Social lubricant works every time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sounds gross. Yeah. Okay. Um, my, <laughs> all right. Uh, next question for you is, and you're super biased on this one, but mm-hmm. if you're an MSP and you're looking to create a, um, a marketing function in your business or add to it. Um, what are the cases for and against an external agency versus an in-house role? Yeah, this is a really, I guess, topical question because I've got a few MSP clients that say to me, we want to hire in-house and we just can't find someone. So it's, I guess, you know, it's a big enough industry, but I guess the skill shortage is still there. So, um, I think in an ideal world, you would go mainly in-house because they just have that intimate knowledge of the business. And I always really like that, but I think that they need to be complemented by external skill sets because I think it's unrealistic that you're going to have a jack of all trades that can do everything. Um, But let's be realistic. It's really hard to hire that kind of role. So what I'm seeing happening at the moment is people, IT businesses are hiring outside of the industry they're hiring marketing experts that have worked in different sectors i mean everyone uses it so they've probably been a customer of it in the past but they haven't worked inside the industry um and they are complemented by someone in like an advisory capacity or an agency that knows the it channel um so like i personally mentor a few uh in-house marketing managers of msps that know marketing really well, but they don't really know how to apply it specifically to an MSP scenario. Um, so I guess yeah. it's, it's a mix of that. Yeah. I I don't know if you've seen this, but I've come across it recently where I think people who haven't really done marketing themselves mm-hmm. don't quite know what to advertise for when they're looking for a marketing role. And, mm-hmm. and your point there about the, that external 
um, skill set because you're not going to get some unicorn. But I often see, and, and to be completely fair, I did this when I first started with Lightwire and I was looking to build a marketing team. I did the classic marketing coordinator, JD, and basically said, I want everything from strategy through to implementation. Yeah. And I hope you can do everything, including like website management and God knows what else. Yeah. And, I, and I, I still see those ads going out and, and I've learned my lesson and realized that there's a wide distribution and array of skills mm-hmm. um, within the marketing sphere. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I think a big problem is that people are still looking for these one person can do the entire sort of marketing gambit. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. As you said, unicorn is the perfect terminology for that because they just, yeah, they're very few and far between. Um, so I guess, you know, in terms of marketing coordinator, term, like job titles and things like that, if I was to put out a job ad for someone right now, I would be marketing for a digital marketer, content creator, that kind of thing. And then I would be supporting them through other resources to actually learn the industry. Because I think everything's about content creation. Yeah, that's right. So you got to have someone who owns that, someone who owns the community space, someone who owns the digital platforms. Um, yeah, there's there's a whole range, right? But, but I yeah, think that's there right. Is. And I mean, MSPs can't afford different roles for all those different things. So you kind of, you know, I, when I've been recruiting for roles before, I've advertised for three different versions of a job before just to see who I catch. <laughs> and then you can train them from that. So yeah, you could put up a Seeker LinkedIn ad for a content creator, for a community manager and just see what you get. Mm. So, but that kind of, it touches on the point too, though, that you can't go from zero to four jobs in an MSP, you know, four new roles, full-time marketing roles and take on God knows how many hundreds of thousands of dollars in overhead yeah. without being sure of a return. So yeah. if you're starting from zero, if you're trying to build marketing capability within your business mm-hmm. and you've done this now with, with a, a handful of companies, mm-hmm. what, what are the building blocks? What do you have to establish sort of your priority of, of um, functions or tasks to, to start with in that building the marketing space up? Um, I mean, I, I actually think before you bring on a marketing person is to actually have your product and your packages and your what where you want to go, who you want to target already known because I've just seen too many times people hire marketing too quickly and they don't. I mean, you said yourself at Lightway it took you a while with these podcasts to find your voice and things like that. Um, I've seen people invest in marketing, you know, overheads too fast and they waste a lot of time iterating different things because they don't actually know where they're going yet. So I think having a bit of um, investment up front in terms of your brand direction, who you are, who you actually target, knowing all of that first before you add a headcount or engage an agency. Because an agency, I would hire an agency on skills, like technical skills. So are they good at advertising? Are they good at email marketing, that kind of thing. I think it's very rare that you're going to go to an agency and find that they specialize in MSPs. Um, So you have to have that knowledge yourself first before you engage on that. I think it's a great call. Um, Yeah, we did. And I had, uh, again, um, long ago when I was probably awkward as hell, I had a guy called Ron Wood on who was Mm -hmm. a a pricing methodology expert. He's actually based in Sydney with you as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, you know, he, he taught me that we had to go to market and actually research, um, you know, our, across different business sizes and functions within those businesses to understand how our 
our offer was perceived and who we actually added value to and in which parts of offering was that value derived from doing that enabled us to have a value-based pricing methodology. So, you know, how much against say Telstra in the SME space versus mid-market were we seen as having a deficit or premium uh, from a value perspective and that meant we could align our price to it. And until you do that, you're absolutely right. You do not know who you're trying to talk to, mm-hmm. how they like to be spoken to, what you're trying to highlight. And the marketing team has kind of nothing to work on. Like, who am I talking to and, and what should I be saying to them? Exactly. Um, so, and, and where do I find them? Yeah, I'm all, I'm all about niching, especially if we're talking about MSPs, marketing to end user businesses. I think, you know, some MSPs go out and sing from the rooftops that we can support anyone and that's their strength, but that waters down. Like, yes, it makes their addressable market really Mm. big, but it waters down their messaging and the market is so, so crowded. So when I talk to MSPs, I talk about niching Mm. hardcore. So sectors within sectors and just, you know, I I would rather have a target list of 30 really perfect fit companies than, you know, thousands of nobodies and the data is probably not accurate and you don't even know what your conversation with them is. So if you can really figure out who you're talking to, get some really solid case studies together, that kind of thing, it's just going to set up this new marketing hire or new marketing agency up for success a lot better. Yeah. Um, I think that skill shortage you alluded to earlier is part of that too, right? You can't have every possible certification, every possible sort of tech stack covered. You've got to really go, right, who who are we trying to serve and what skills do we need to, to align with that? Because yeah. Yeah, if you try to be everything to everyone, you're going to, you're going to struggle. Um, exactly. And can I just say chat GP is um, not a marketing staff member for you either. I think it's definitely a tool. <laughs> I mean, it's people, a start. Yeah, it is a start. It is a start. But again, I would like, if I was going to use chat GP to write a marketing brochure, you would be serving it in your request to it with exactly who you're targeting. So write this for doctor yeah. surgeries or legal firms or that kind of thing. Yeah, my, my experience with that so far, um, and my wife, she works for a um, swimwear company that's got, um, I forget what tool they use, but there's some level of that functionality built into the product um, description um, that they can kind of autofill. Um, but it just it creates a framework that you can then go and sort of um, curate. It's really as good as it gets at the moment because you don't want to lose your brand voice. You don't want to lose your own humor, your own take on it. Yeah. Um, and, and it's pretty obvious when everything starts sounding kind of the same too. So exactly. um, I think it's a, it's a handy tool, but it's, that's it, it. It's a tool. It's not a replacement hundred percent. So Canva that everyone lives in these days that has just started. I saw um, a pop-up. I was in it the other day where it's doing some sort of suggestive copywriting, um, services i haven't got a chance to play around with it yet but 100 percent, you nailed on on the head you're going to lose your brand voice if you use that for everything and you'll sound like everyone else hmm. so it's a handy shortcut yeah there is that but it's not sort of the whole solution i was just thinking to that because i like to do that uh during conversations um i our, our flywheel in our business um starts with you know understand our our, our customers and their requirements and then build the tools to suit and sort of goes from there mm-hmm. um that research element's a marketing function though right like we've got somebody in the business whose job it is to research both our existing and potential uh customer and client base both in our b2c and b2b play mm-hmm. and it's a pretty full-time job but mm-hmm. without it we just have no idea how we're tracking both from a customer satisfaction or brand awareness or we have no benchmarking at all to understand how we're even 
you know this marketing spend that we're 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 throwing a lot of you know time and effort into mm-hmm. um without that benchmarking without that research element how are you tracking performance and and so i think that that research piece is often um sort of overlooked or it's done once and then kind of parked it's it's not really a consistent yeah. allocated job function yeah that's unfortunately so many businesses wouldn't be equipped to have someone doing that so it's fantastic that your business does that. Um, mm. You mentioned, you know, done once and parked. I've seen that so many times and it gets out of date fast. So I think it's got to be so fast. if you yeah. can't allocate someone to do it, you've got to structure it in, in, in like embed it into day-to-day sort of your, your SOPs, your standard operating procedures across and, and just share it, share the resource and the workload around. So make it, you know, part of a consultant's job, part of ops jobs, part of finance job, um, after they send invoices, things like that. Um, But the input, so some businesses do that well, but it doesn't get fed back to marketing a lot of the time. So yeah, it, it really depends on the sort of ecosystem of the business, how involved marketing is. And that's a risk, I guess, if you're using an agency or something like that, if they're not asking you the right questions they're not in the town halls or the qbrs or the you know team meetings to pick up the water cooler type conversations so yeah some businesses either don't do it some businesses do it and it doesn't get back to marketing so yeah it's definitely um, an area that a lot of businesses can improve on a couple of um good examples that you said that you know things move quickly things get out of date quickly mm-hmm. i mean in our New Zealand market, we have a fixed wireless network and I would say, not our last one, maybe the one before that, our annual survey, which is our, our biggest individual sort of research element in the B2C space, mm-hmm. we had, uh, Starlink didn't exist yet, right? And so all the questions were, you know, around um, people's, uh, I guess, perception of value for money, mm-hmm. um, their perception of fast speeds, their, um, um, I guess, awareness of brands and where they place them in terms of the hierarchy of value on offer. And then a year later, it's all completely thrown in its head because Starlink exists and the price points where people were paying up to 200 bucks for a 300 gig data limit, it's like, what? You 159 unlimited, right? So if you're not keeping up, if you're not keep going back to the market as these things change, you're going to be wildly out of whack. And I think um, there was one other play there as well that um, came back to us from our research. It was in my head there. What the hell was it? Um, oh, that's right. The, the, the bubble, the bubble effect, right? So when you're in a, in a business and your customers love you, that's great, right? We get lots of people ringing up and telling our, our support team, you're so great and sending nice emails and thumbs up on tickets and all that sort of good stuff. And our, we had a tendency to go, everyone knows who we are in our patch. We're great. And who, who wouldn't love us? And then you go to the market through this research and say, Hey, you know, um, uh, unaided, um, brand, um, recall. So tell me, you know, 10 ISPs you can think of off the top of your head. Yeah, we we were just never mentioned. And this is in our patch, in our target demo. And and we were we had nothing like the brand awareness we thought we did. And we would never have known if we just listened to our own praise. Yeah. So yeah, it's um it's really important that I think you you question those assumptions, you challenge them. Yeah, absolutely. It, complete self like in marketing, self-awareness of your business is is so critical and something people have to check themselves on pretty regularly so as you say client feedback Mm. you can't just assume people even know about you but even just awareness of your product or or your solution in the market even if it's not your business your competitors I think a lot of people you know 
you start a business, you pour your heart and soul into it and it occupies so much of your headspace. And then when people go to talk to people, they assume that the customer has a lot of the knowledge that they have. So it really helps, you know, when you're creating any kind of marketing content or not even marketing content, customer facing content, right for like a five-year-old, uh, a year five grade person um, and pretend that they actually don't know anything about your business and go back to basics like all the time because people get so deep, deep into their passion and their world and they forget that the problem that they're solving is actually, you know, only in a few minutes of someone's day and they just don't have the same mind share to it. And so they, they yeah. really yeah. can lose their audience that way. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it's funny. We we live this business, right? It's it's a fraction of, of other people's reality. It's a good reminder. Yeah. Um, okay, so if you are a an MSP operator and you um, you've decided to to give marketing a real crack or, or ramp up your efforts in that area, what are the key ways that you should be looking to measure your effectiveness in your view? Obviously, there's there's different types of things. Just AdWords might be a bit easier, but mm-hmm. what are the key metrics and and key ways that you can judge the effectiveness of your efforts? So attributions in marketing is really hard because, and this is an ongoing debate with every marketing person in the whole world, I think. I mean, someone needs to see your brand, they reckon, 13 times before they'll buy from you. So how do you figure out which of those points was the turning point? So it's it's quite Mm. a big debate. Do I track the original source point? So it's that I sponsored this conference and I met this person there, but I didn't close them for a year and I did all these things, including AdWords and retargeting and LinkedIn messaging and direct mail pieces and email newsletters and that kind of thing. For me, I know data is data and it's got to be scalable. Literally nothing beats the asking the person the question of what changed your mind or what was the turning point I think that's probably the right phrasing what was the turning point that made you decide okay yep I'm going to interact um that human question I know that's going to frustrate some people because they just want the system to tell you but I'm big about asking like getting sales reps to ask the question because that is what makes it more powerful but you can't forget all those other kind of supporting steps along the way because it's just it's kind of a whole ecosystem of touch points and you've got to do them all and it's really hard to see what works and what doesn't and and how much of it's just timing right like if you serve up some version of the same info (laughs) but there just happened to be some external factor that you had no influence on whatsoever that meant that that fifth or sixth or seventh time it landed um we we had that today we we had a client we we had um two of our bd well one of our bdms and our head of business meet with this this client who, who got in touch with us and they'd seen us serve up stuff he said they saw our stuff like five times a week in their linkedin feed and then mm-hmm. one day they actually had a need for a specific thing they clicked on this thing and and, and downloaded our book and got in touch but again it's like you know is that because a particular ad was better than an ad ad A was better than ad B or is it just purely luck time and place? Marketing is down to luck. Don't measure anything if you can't influence Jeff. <laughs> no, yeah. yeah, if you were paying, you know, you had an external agency, they're going to jump all over that and be like it was this format of ad and all that kind of thing. And, yes, there is truth to that. You, I'm not saying ignore the data. 
probably look at higher trend, like step back and look at the trends. But if you look at one particular thing, it could have been luck that day that their laptop broke or something like that and that they needed an IT provider and they'd seen you. So I guess my takeaway lesson from that that I would be telling business owners and, and marketing managers is just to keep showing up with more content. And, you know, day-to-day LinkedIn Mm -hmm. posts can be quick and I come back to be authentic. You're not a Microsoft who has, you know, million-dollar marketing budgets necessarily. Just create, create, of course, keep a level of professionalism and that kind of thing, but just keep yourself, put yourself out there, keep showing up. Um, Definitely invest in the bigger, chunkier, you know, assets, marketing assets, where you gate them, download people, download them like eBooks and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, just making quick videos, posts, infographics, a poll, like it actually is, it's so easy now to post on LinkedIn. There's no excuse if people aren't doing it because they've just got to be in their prospects face. All the That's time. true. Yeah. As long as what they're posting isn't a picture of them at some conference with someone else just showing they're at a conference or like it still has to be worthwhile or not just some random I'm awesome because post like that. that yeah. Um, I think that people have to be a bit structured with their types of content. So I normally talk to clients about having like pillars of content so that, so that they don't oversaturate one type. So they might have like a personal pillar where they talk about their career journey. They might have a product pillar where they actually talk about what they sell. They might have social networking pillars where it's things like conferences, et cetera, um, just so you get a bit of an even spread across them all. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and then also you'll see that there's probably different demos that that content lands with and you're not excluding any particular one. Yeah. Um, just go back to the metrics. I've got a theory uh, which is poorly thought out and might fall flat, but I'm going to say it as it comes to mind, yeah. which is that um, – there's a whole bunch of different things you can measure, but ultimately marketing's job is to make sales easier, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're measuring customer acquisition cost, you either want to be driving that down ideally, or more importantly, driving ARPU and, and probably not even average revenue per user so much as average GP per user mm-hmm. up, right? Like yeah. you've either got to be delivering more value more effectively so people are prepared to pay more for it, or you're signing up more and more services at at a fixed cost. So that's going down over time. Mm-hmm. Like it, those are the two things I guess I want to measure with my, my chief revenue officer hat on because, you know, if, if your customer acquisition cost is going up because your marketing spend's gone up, but you're not doing anything more with it, those are ultimately the numbers that matter. You can measure all the attribution costs in the world, but if, mm-hmm. if that number's not shifting in the right direction, then something's not landing. Yeah, yeah. You have to absolutely think about the message that it's telling you and go a bit more detailed. So at my old MSP, we would... Um, a lot of the new deals we got started with a paid IT health check or IT audit. Um, And that was often a loss leader for us. So if I was going to purely measure my marketing on these IT health checks, it actually wouldn't look good from a revenue perspective. So the additional metric we would add onto that is conversion of the initial IT health check that then progressed to like an ARR a recurring revenue arrangement. And that's actually what mattered, not that first purchase because that wasn't necessarily a moneymaker. That makes sense. And that's it. Like when I'm talking about sort of um, that that recurring revenue metric, whatever whatever it is that you want to track, mm-hmm. um, it's not a three-month or even a six-month thing. It's got to be a longer-term play because the sales lifecycle per business is going to vary. And I assume in the MSP space, it's much like ours in the telco space where it's mm-hmm. rather lengthy and um, it's quite a process. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, it can be 18 months, three years. Yeah, that's 18 months, three years. Holy crap, that's long. Yep. Um, yeah, ours probably isn't that long, to be fair. <laughs> but we're, we're um, focused mostly on wholesale relationships, but we, we have plenty that take 12 months, but yeah, yeah. probably not that long. So sympathies. Um, advertising, do you think AdWords is a good play? Is there the required search volume to make it smart? Do you just have to be in on it because everyone else is? Discuss. Depends what industry we're talking about. You're not going to like that answer because it's too on the fence. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it really it can work if you're selling something that is searchable and specific. But yeah. if it's like an MSP, you know, in Sydney and they're going to go out and try and get the number one paid search spot for IT Support Sydney, I'm going to tell them don't waste your budget because it's really highly competitive. And unless you have the best website in the world, what's it going to do? Because a lot of MSP websites look the same and yeah. Um, so it yeah. really, really depends on your market. I think where I see um, kind of paid, uh, paid advertising work best is in retargeting. So if you've already had a relationship with someone, an engagement with them, they've downloaded a piece of your content, you know they've got interest in what you're offering, retargeting them through ad banners and LinkedIn posts and things like that, that is where I see best return happening. And what's the what tool are you seeing is the best option to sort of have that observed behavior-based um, retargeting campaigns? Is it a HubSpot thing that you primarily use or have you got you know, clients using Pardot and Salesforce or something? Well, what's the... HubSpot seems to be the norm. I mean, when I was at an MSP, I used Hubs, uh, sorry, Pardot, and that was good because um, that mm -hmm. had the integration with Salesforce, with what we use at the time. Um, but now I, for all my clients, everyone has HubSpot. Um, it's predominantly used for sort of email marketing and sales sequencing and things like that. Um, it does have integration with the paid paid stuff. But to be honest, a lot of people, most businesses engage separate agencies to run their advertising because it's quite a specialist, specialist skill to have. Yeah. Well, actually ties into my next question, which is uh, what makes good copy when it comes to websites and, and, you know, I guess, which are essentially advertising vehicles. Um, but do you use like a, the, the, the ones I've come across, uh, you know, um, paint the, the person you're trying to sell to as the hero and you're sort of their companion on this journey to, to, you know, um, to, to take down whatever the problem is they're, they're focusing on. Mm -hmm. um, I forget what, uh, what the name of that book was, but, but that's a concept. There's, there's a whole, there's a range of, I guess, ways that people tell you to write copy, but what mm -hmm. makes a good website copy in your view? Is definitely problem and solution focus, not just serving up hey, here's who I am and this is what I do, take it or leave it. It's, you know, making the viewer feel like you're in the right place. This is your problem. We understand you. It's, yeah, really talking to the scenario that they're in so that they're like, oh, yeah, I'm comfortable. I'm in the right place. Um, and making it simple as well. I mentioned before people are very deep in their own solution sets so they want to get jargony and talk really technical about it. But I think a mm, website is mm. often your first touch point with a lot of people. So you've got to start off simple um, and engage them from there. So, yeah, not overcomplicated, problem sort of based, I would recommend. And a shitload of social proof if you've got it. And like you said earlier on, case studies, 
Yeah. And I don't know what else, but above the fold, you know, you don't have long to, to show them why you're different. So yeah, yeah. higher up is, is good. Yeah. I mean, social proof, 100% little, but readable ones, like, yes, you, you might want a two-page case study. That's probably for like lower down in your sales process. If you're tendering or, you know, you're quoting someone, they might really want a detailed view of it. But when you're just talking homepage, a really short quote, is enough um, and that can make a really big difference. I mean, we can take a lesson in B2B, we can take a lesson from like e-com consumer marketing. If they put, you know, add to cart type scenarios, if they put a list of their verified uh, five-star reviews, that's proved to increase like the purchase conversion by 80%. And in B2B, we're still selling to people as well. So we can take that lesson People want yeah. proof. They want to know what other people think about your product. So just because you're not selling a widget, you're still selling a service. People want to know what other people think about it. So yeah, don't be afraid to get your clients, ask your clients to give you a Google review, get quotes on your website, that kind of thing. Okay. So people buy from people mm-hmm. uh, and I will let you go soon, but uh, if people buy from people, uh, try and be funny on your website. Yes or no? If it suits your brand. Absolutely. Yeah. True. You got to have that wrapped up. Use swear words like uh, I think Aussie broadband uses shit a fair bit. Um, is yep. that is that a, a smart play? Do, again, let's assume that your market is uh, you're not not uh, particularly sensitive. Do you think there's uh, the, the potential benefit that raises the risk in terms of differentiating in a crowded market? If it's done right, if it's done right. So I don't know if you follow Gong on LinkedIn, but they do lots of stats around sales and marketing, and they published some stat recently that um, if a client swears on a sales call with you, it is an indicator that they have a really high propensity to buy because they're comfortable with you. Hmm. So it was like, it was a bit of a meme that yes, my client said shit on the call that I had with them. Um, but I think <laughs> that it's maybe like, well, uh, they're just telling you to fuck off. Yeah, in which yeah, case. Well, that's probably the exception. Um, yeah. But I think yeah. that that's probably yeah. lower. I maybe wouldn't do it on a homepage but I might do it in like a blog or something like mm. that where you can start showcasing your personality. Is Lightwire going to start having like shit and all that on your homepage now? Prince? No, <laughs> but one of the best responses I ever got to anything we've done was um, last April Fool's and I um, I actually got some um, budgie smugglers made with the Lightwire logo all over them and the Lightwire at the, on the on the bum spot at the back there. Okay. Um, they've never been worn actually because they're, they're white and I'm worried they're see-through. But anyway. I was going to say that's great. <laughs> but we put up on LinkedIn that uh, our merch shop was almost ready to go with stock now in hand. And, um, and like, we had such good engagement. So many people were like, yes, that's awesome. And uh, no one got that it was April 1st. I was just like so supportive. And it was like a few thousand um, like likes and comments and stuff. I was like, this is amazing. Um, and it just showed me people uh, have got a good sense of humor and uh, sort of ready to kind of embrace it. I felt bad at the end of the show. I went, um, sorry, April Fool's. I just just walk away quietly from this. <laughs> I think I've started something I can't see through. Um, but uh, well, <laughs> refuse to. Uh, but um, the uh, but, but I guess the key point there is I just realized that there is room to be informal and kind of just, um, yeah, kind of just take the piss a bit and have a bit of fun. And, yeah, and yeah. it makes working more enjoyable as well, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, people, if they're, especially if it's, you know, a recurring service, they want to have fun 
and enjoy the people that they're going to work with. I mean, you can't portray yourself as completely reckless because they're trusting their business to you. So that's a fine line, definitely. But you know, I've seen some. That's true. I've seen some companies yeah. do some really good like memes um, on LinkedIn and things like that. So like Pax Eight are quite funny. I enjoy um, some of their marketing yeah, good. that they put out. Yeah, I think I think sometimes you've got to be light with things. You don't want to, especially in MSP. You don't want to be on LinkedIn every day or doom and gloom, cybersecurity, you know, there's a carrot in the stick type approach. Um, so, yeah, I think if it suits your brand personality, be light, be funny every now and again, show that you're human. True. I also um, should, in the interest of being authentic, um, admit that uh, I totally bust out the budgie smugglers. I'm over 40. I live on the Gold Coast. They practically turn up in the mail. Um, yeah. So and, and you're a yeah, dad. Uh, just so, so no one you know. uh, calls me out. Remain. Yeah, that's it. Totally. Yeah. Dad over 40 on the coast. It's, yeah. uh, it's just it's the rules. I so, don't make them up, but. So we can start, we can start like a movement here. Anyone who's watching this and is in your area, if they spot you at the beach, uh, we can start a hashtag like Brendan in budgie smugglers. <laughs> main, main beach on the weekend, but they just won't be the light white ones. Cause again, they're white. Okay. Uh, and I'm very, very scared. Um, all right. So, uh, feeling vulnerable and awkward. So <laughs> we'll leave that there. Um, but, uh, yes, good. Okay. Actually, you mentioned Pax8, James Davis, the head of Pax8 Academy. Um, we recorded an episode with him a few days back. Mm -hmm. He's going to be on some point after you as well. And, uh, you'd be glad to know that he um, echoed a number of your talking points around that need to just niche down. And, um, uh, so yes, when, when that comes cool. out, I'm sure you'll be, um, to watching it. uh, what's it validated in your views. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Okay. Hey, um, anything else you'd like to tell us about any of the brands you're working with or anything um, people should be looking out for? Um, I think just I, I, as a general statement, you know, events and everything are coming back online now, finally after COVID. I think that, you know, there's a real movement of, of MSPs creating tools for other MSPs. And I love that in the community. So I guess like you know, Baycastle and, and Zen Contract, like Greg Sharp at Zen Contract created something for his own business that now he's sharing with other people. So I just um, encourage people, like, rather than living in their problem day after day, just engage with each other because someone else has likely thought of a solution for it. Um, and, you know, I love that about the IT channel that people just like sharing. So, yeah, just as a general statement, like get out there and chat with each other and share solutions because there's so much gold out there that I see now, like being because I crossed to the dark side to Vendorland, um, that I wish I knew about when I was an MSP, um, that I was just slogging away and accepting as reality. And, it, yeah, it just doesn't need to be that way. So just get out there, engage and share knowledge with each other. It makes such a difference. Yeah, and as you said, um, Kiwi and Australian MSP operators are typically pretty good at doing that. All right, Ali Burke from The Launch Project, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, have yourself a good weekend. Thank you so much, Brendan. I'll talk to you later.